If you're new here, I'm Kyle, one of the pastors. We like to walk through, sometimes crawl through books of the Bible. And this is our last week in the little book of Philemon. And it's been a, a very rewarding study for us. Uh, I wrote my exposition for this week on Thursday. That's typical for me. I spend about 35 hours each week in research and sermon writing. So on Thursday, once I finished writing the exposition, I found myself looking at those sermon notes praying, God, turn this water into wine. <laughs> Make this lunchable, feed the multitude. I mean, I was, I was really on the struggle bus. The exposition, I, it was faithful to the text, but to me, it just seemed dry and dusty. So I decided to rewrite the entire thing. Why? Because I love to torture myself. My wife tells me that after a while, most men develop a style of preaching. All of their sermons have the same structure. Whether it's three points, a poem, and a prayer, or starting with a historical illustration and then weaving it throughout the sermon, or always the sandwich technique with a story that starts here but ends here, the wraparound story. Or for some, they preach where the big idea doesn't come until the last word of the sermon. Or for some preachers, they always start with the culture and they create a need. And, and uh, then they show how the Bible, how Christ meets that need, so they work toward the Bible. Or some are like I've been accused of before, like the Puritans who have like 25 points in every sermon. And for some, they have no points at all, walking through the text and then at the end just giving some applications. Sarah told me, she said, you don't have that yet. You, you go at each text differently each week. It's never the same structure. And that's true. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just me. I just can't lay out the exposition the same way every Sunday. And I wanted to rewrite this exposition because the purpose of Bible stories is not to say you must and you should. The purpose of Bible stories are to give insight into how men and women relate to the eternal God and how God relates to them. That's why I don't want to break up this narrative with points because points often feel unnatural when you're telling a story. For instance, if I were telling you how I met my wife Sarah, I'd, I don't say, number one, I met her in the lunchroom at college and she blew me off. Number two, I met her again at a basketball game and we began to talk. Number three, I flexed my biceps and she began to swoon. Like, it's just unnatural, right? You don't have one, two, three when you're telling a story. That's why some expositors, they do really well in Ephesians, but they may struggle with narrative text. You can't teach a narrative like you would teach a doctrinal letter. And good storytellers do not convey their stories through analytical outlines. Haddon Robinson is my favorite narrative preacher. He, he literally wrote the book on biblical preaching. He's with the Lord now. I'll forever be indebted to him because I never heard him preach without feeling like I was in the story, watching it unfold. He knew how to captivate with the well-told story. He taught me about first-person preaching, which is what I'm going to do today. First-person preaching is a dramatic monologue it's like reenacting the text. It's not mindless entertainment. It's faithful exposition through the perspective of a character in the story. And I've always loved writing first-person expositions. I've always felt at home doing it, like I'm doing what I was created to do. 
I don't mean, however, that I feel completely relaxed or in control. It stretches me. It's a challenge. But one I'm, I'm always eager to face. I've, I've never delivered a first-person exposition at FFC. I've done them for other churches, usually around Christmas time with the Joseph and Mary narrative, but never here. So that's why I'm unpacking to you because it's going to be unfamiliar to you. Uh, typically, listening to me is like, and some of you, you can attest to this, typically listening to me is like drinking from a fire hydrant. You, just, you can't swallow it all, but you leave just you know, drenched in grace. Well, today is different. No outlines, no points, no application, just one big idea. A loaf of bread, not a field of wheat. When I start, I'm not coming at you as Kyle, one of the pastors, but as Philemon. I'm going to wear Philemon, to be Philemon. And I'm not going to break character until we begin singing. Now, another prayer before we begin. Would you pray with me? Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. Give us rest through this first person exposition of your word. And I pray and ask this through the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. Who is Onesimus? <laughs> He's a thief, a lying, conniving criminal, a runaway bandit. A little over a year ago, I gave that pirate the opportunity to keep the books around here. That's how much we trusted him. And he left with our retirement in his pockets. My wife, Afia, had a small amount of cash reserved for some new dishes. He snatched that as well. I had to tell my grown son what Onesimus did. I'll never forget the look of shock. Those boys grew up together. They were like brothers. Onesimus fled to Rome, and he spent our nest egg on bottles and brothels until finally he hit rock bottom. Apparently, he randomly met the man who led me to Christ eight years ago, Paul. Maybe you've heard of him. And apparently, Paul led him to Christ and then sent him back here with this letter. I've been, been reading it slowly. Reading one verse, letting it sink in. Reading another verse, taking time to process it. In the first seven verses, he gives the typical pleasantries and then just points out some evidences of God's grace in my life. Some evidences of being touched by mercy. Some evidences of being redeemed. Some fruit of being a Christian. And I really needed to read that. Everyone thinks I always have it together, but there are times. There are times when I really struggle. This letter arrived exactly when I needed it most. Never underestimate what it does to a person's soul when you point out evidences of grace in his or her life. 
The next 10 verses are the guts of the letter. And it's here where Paul asks of me a favor. At first I thought Paul was just buttering me up. He's flattering me to get me to do what he wants. After processing it, I realized that wasn't consistent with his character. Flattery is not godly. Flattery breaks the ninth commandment. It bears false witness. It exaggerates and manipulates to reach an intended goal. That's not Paul and that's not this letter. This is true godly encouragement with no other agenda than my spiritual welfare. I haven't finished reading the letter yet. Currently in verse 17. You, you might as well know what it says. You deserve that much for allowing me to word vomit on you. It's no way for you to have a copy of this letter. It's addressed to me. This is the only copy in the entire world. Here's what Paul says to me in verse 17. If you consider me your partner, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. <laughs> receive Onesimus? I hope you don't mind me using you as a sounding board, but I just, I need help processing this. I know you're not aware, but up until this point in the letter, Paul has not given a single imperative. And now he peppers me with four in rapid fire succession. Verse 17, receive. Verse 18, charge. Verse 20, refresh. Verse 24, re prepare. It's like he used apostolic finesse before and now it seems like he's using mitigated arm twisting. It's very difficult for me to receive Onesimus like I would receive Paul. Because Paul hasn't wronged me. And Onesimus has. And I know. I know I have some emotional baggage. I fight bitterness toward that boy every day. When I'm bumped, my first reaction is to spew bitterness instead of spew grace. I've imagined scenarios of seeing Onesimus again. I've played out the scene a thousand times in my mind. I know it sounds terrible, but in every scenario, I verbally rip his face. And in some scenarios, even worse. I know Paul wants me to forget, for receive Onesimus. And I, and I know that no Christian has the right to refuse a welcome to the one whom God has welcomed. If, if God made Philemon his child, then I would need to view him as my brother in Christ. I know Paul is giving me a gospel inference, a gospel nudge. Without mentioning the word, he's implying it. Philemon, forgive. Paul wrote me a fill-in-the-blank letter. Forgiveness is never directly mentioned, but it's implied everywhere. I was taught from a child that forgiveness was not honorable. It was a sign of weakness. Yet here I am receiving this gospel imperative from Paul. I know. I know unforgiveness will just imprison me to the past. 
I know unforgiveness keeps the pain alive. I know it keeps the sore open. I know it hinders my relationship with God. But sometimes I'd rather have the bitterness of holding a grudge than have the presence of God. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. I know if I refuse to receive Onesimus, refuse to forgive him, I'm swimming in dangerous waters. I know it's putting myself in the place of God, as though vengeance is my job and not his. But there are times when I want to shake my fist at God and say, your standards may have been satisfied, but my standards are higher. Will I ever be able to look at Onesimus and say, I hold no anger. I hold no hatred. I hold no bitterness against you. Will I ever be able to say, I promise that I will never bring it up to you. I will never bring it up to anyone else. I will never bring it up to myself. No matter what you have done to me, no matter how you have offended me, I make a promise never to seek revenge. I'm not sure I can say those words. Well, not say them and have a heart behind it. I, I need to center myself. I need to preach the gospel to myself. I need to remind myself who I am and who God is. Forgiveness produces forgiveness. When Jesus died on the cross for me, as me, because of me, forgiveness oozed from every pore of his body. I have been forgiven by God. So I should grant forgiveness to Onesimus. I will never forgive Onesimus for as much as God in Christ has forgiven me. I'm seeing his sin very clearly and I'm missing mine. No one gives forgiveness better than the person who is deeply persuaded that he needs it himself and receives it from Christ. I'm sure you're probably thinking it. You've definitely seen it. It's probably obvious to you, but it's just now hitting me. How arrogant I am not to forgive. I'm basking in the forgiveness of a perfectly holy and righteous God and then turning to Philemon and saying, my sins are forgivable and yours are not. Preaching the gospel to myself is hard. But I have to learn. I have to discipline myself to do it. I'm never more like the Father than when I forgive. Can I be slighted for the gospel? Is this relationship irrevocably beyond repair? Do I have a means by which I can deal with conflict and come out singing on the other side? All of these questions are just bouncing around in my mind. And, and, and on top of that, this, this letter is sticky. It's traveled over 1,100 miles. What is that? It's grace. The letter is spilling grace everywhere. Sticky grace. Annoying grace. Uncomfortable grace. 
I'm just going to be honest with you. I have to leave this verse. I have to go on to verse 18. Something is weird. The handwriting changes in verse 18. It's like someone else wrote this verse. It's not as clear as the previous. It's messy. It's very large letters. But I think I can make it out. It says in verse 18, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Paul usually writes his letters using a stenographer. He only picks up the quill to sign his name at the end. Not here, though. Paul's writing this verse with his own hand. Let me go back and read it again. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Wow. Paul is formally assuming Onesimus' debt. He wants me to put Onesimus' debt in the ledger under his name. I have his personal handwritten IOU right here. See, I'm a businessman. I know business language. And the words charge and repay come from the world of commerce, the world of business, the world of finances. He's taking on Onesimus' indebtedness. He will make good on any damages that I have suffered. He will satisfy the demands of the law. Paul is saying, give Onesimus the guest room, the room of honor. I'll stand in his place. I'll sleep in his room, the slave quarters. He will stand in my place. I will stand in his place. Give him my welcome. I'll take his debt. I've never seen anything like this. It's like Paul is putting one arm around me and then putting another arm around Onesimus and then he is reconciling us. There is something to me that's unusual about this letter though. There's no gospel in it. No death, no burial, no resurrection of Jesus Christ and that's so unusual for my mentor, Paul. Why would Paul send me a crossless letter? Wait a minute. I think I'm beginning to see something. I think this was intentional. Yes! Paul's walking out what theologians call the doctrine of imputation. Oh, that's clever. That's really clever. Paul is taking on himself the debt of Onesimus. His debt is imputed to Paul. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, my sins were put on his, his account. They were imputed to him. He was treated the way I should have been treated. What has happened physically to Onesimus has happened spiritually to me. And I can't fathom what I'm seeing now for the first time. Who is Onesimus? I am Onesimus. I was enslaved by my sinful nature, waiting for my eternal punishment. I was the runaway. Jesus went to the Father and he said, charge his debt to my account. I'll take his debt so he can be free. 
I see now. I see that God's grace is aggressive. It pursued Onesimus, and it's pursuing me. Jesus, you are the ultimate reconciler. You bridge the ultimate gap, not merely between a slave owner and a slave, but larger, between sinful man and a holy and righteous God. You took me by the hand and you took God by the hand and you brought the two together. I stood beneath the debt I could never afford. My sins, they were many. But your mercy was more. I need to continue reading. The end of verse 19, Paul says, To say nothing of your owing me even your own self. <laughs> Paul is so Paul. He says, put Onesimus' debt on my account and then cancel it because you owe me so much. Paul tells me he's not going to mention that I, that I owe him my soul. And then he mentions that I owe him my soul. I remember using the same rhetorical maneuver when little Archippus wouldn't clean his room. I'd say, Archippus, I'm not going to mention our rule. If you can't, you can't go outside until you clean your room. I mentioned it by saying I wasn't going to mention it. When I was really annoyed, I used to say, Archippus, I'm not going to mention that I brought you into this world and I can take you out. <laughs> I, was, I was such a good dad. Paul turned me from creditor to debtor in the space of two verses. And I am in debt to Paul. He shaped my life. For two years, he exposited the scriptures to me in Ephesus. Every week, just pouring out himself, attempting to get this text across to me. I guess Onesimus and I are two estranged Christians, both of whom, under God, owe our salvation to Paul. Paul continues writing in verse 20. Yes, brother, I have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul's expressing confidence in the gospel's work in my life. He's confident that I will forgive. He has more confidence in me than I have in myself. My desire has always been to be pastorable. Not even sure if that's a word or if I just created it, but to be pastorable. Hear what you don't want to hear, but know it's true and submit to it. Paul is using the drip effect in his letter to me. He's dripping certain words from beginning to end. One of the words is refresh and the other one is heart. First, he said, you refresh the heart of the saints. That was encouraging to me. Then he said, I need you to refresh my heart and I want to do that for him. Between those two mentions, he said, I'm sending Onesimus back to you who is my very heart. It seems like I can refresh Paul's heart by receiving his heart. Onesimus. Look at verse 22. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. Paul is coming to check on me. I know he went to the church at Corinth and he said, I'm coming with a rod. 
They needed an iron fist. Hopefully, I only need kid gloves. He continues, I'll read it, verse 22. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Paul seems to be really optimistic that his Roman imprisonment will come to an end. I'm sure the case against him is weak and bogus like it is against most Christians. But he seems desperate that I pray for him. And I know he's strong on the sovereignty of God. Much of what God ordains comes to pass as his people pray. Verse 23, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. You may not know these five men, but these five men are precious to me. I don't know outside of my home church if any five men on earth know me better than these five men. And apparently all of these five men are voting for me to receive Onesimus, to forgive Onesimus. That's going to carry a lot of weight as I make my decision. Do you know um, Epaphras? See, Epaphras planted the church that meets in my home. He was my pastor before my son became my pastor. And he's started a church in neighboring cities as well, not, not only Colossae, but Laodicea and Hierapolis. Paul led me to Christ. Epaphras taught me how to walk with Christ. Now both of them are in the same prison for the cause of Christ. The second name on the list is a little shocking to me. Mark. Some people call him John Mark. He traveled with Paul on his first missionary journey planting churches. He was like a, a little assistant, a little gopher. Go for this, go for that. Paul took a lot of church planting journeys. Mark went with him on the first one, but he flamed out. He deserted Paul. He was a defector, weak. On the second journey, another guy on the team, Barnabas, wanted to take John Mark along, but Paul refused. He flamed out once and he'll flame out again. He's useless. Paul and Barnabas had words. It got intense. They actually split because of it. I thought John, Mark, and Paul were still at odds, that it was never resolved until I read this letter and I see the name Mark. Now I know that Paul forgave this runaway missionary. Paul at times is so forceful with his language and then at other times so subtle. I forgave my runaway. You can forgive your runaway. Mark, who was once useless, is now useful. Onesimus, who was once useless, is now living out the definition of his name. He is useful. My wife, Afia, and I would always talk about which one was wrong. Was Barnabas wrong or was Paul wrong? Barnabas, who wanted to encourage this emotionally weak Christian, give him another chance? Or Paul, who rebuked him and sent him packing because of his immaturity? Now, who was right? The bleeding heart or the emotionless practical church planter? My wife, of course, took the side of Barnabas, the encourager. Maybe it's personality, but I sided with Paul. Looking back, 
I think they were both right. Because Marks need a Paul and a Barnabas. Someone to set the standards and hold them to the standards. And someone to give them second chances. From what I hear, this Mark fellow was a, quite a studious guy. Always researching, always in the books. I, I wouldn't be surprised if one day he, he wrote a book about the history of Christianity. Like a, like a record. A gospel record. The third guy mentioned in the list is named Aristarchus. He's a faithful man. The fourth guy is even more faithful, Demas. He is rock solid, full of gifting, full of charisma. He's in love with Christ. He hates evil. You watch. You'll be reading about the amazing things that Demas accomplished for Christ. That's a faithful man. Finally, he mentions Luke. Luke was always wearing those surgical scrubs, always bandaging the battle wounds of Paul. Whenever he had a free minute, he was with Mark in the books. Mark and Aristarchus are Jews. Luke and Demas are Gentiles. This verse is Psalm 96.3 in living color. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Well, finally, we arrive at the last verse. Verse 25. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's just like Paul to leave me with grace. Grace too often abused. Grace too often neglected. He begins his letter with the Savior's full majestic title. And then he ends the letter with the same full majestic title. He knows I love this title. The Lord Jesus Christ. Honestly, I'm still unsure what I'm going to do with Onesimus. But you can, you can guarantee one thing. If I don't obey Paul, I'm going to destroy this letter. I'm not going to leave any evidence of my disobedience for people to find. If I do obey, I'll hold on to it. I'll share it with people. I'll circulate it throughout the churches that Epaphras started. Who knows? Maybe there's more than a few Onesimuses or Onesimai whatever the plural is of that name. Maybe it's Greek, Anesimoi. This letter does reveal something about the character of God that's needed for all generations, for all languages, and for all people groups. Friend, I've enjoyed the conversation. But before we end it, I'd like to point one thing out. Who is Anesimus? You are Onesimus. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. 
For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.